Turn to First Kings, Second Kings, chapter one. My background people here behind me. I think I feel greater ability to do this tonight with the help that I have here. Second Kings one. We're transitioning from First Kings to Second Kings. Originally, both one one book in the Bible. By the way, originally in the Hebrew Bible, just called Kings. Same content, just uh, divided into two books. What's the message? We finished, basically finished 1 Kings 22 last week. What's the message? These books deal with, as I said when we first started 1 Kings, the continued rise and fall of Israel as a nation. The rise of, of Israel begins under David, and then it continues under Solomon, but it also begins to fall under Solomon. We saw this already in 1 Kings. As one writer said, Israel fell from the heights of national prosperity to the depths of conquest and exile. So they took quite a fall. Why did this happen? Because they continued to be unfaithful to God. They continued to have disobedience to the Lord, especially in the area of idolatry. And uh, they just continued to disobey his word. Uh, we've seen that many times. If I were to title this book, I would take a phrase out of the, I'd borrow a phrase from 2 Samuel chapter 1. In that chapter, uh, Saul has died, Jonathan has died, and David is mourning their loss. And he says this, as he, as he expresses his grief, he says this, How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Now, that's how I would title First and Second Kings, The Mighty Have Fallen. God gives Israel and Judah every opportunity to come to him and repent, and yet we continue to see this resistance to God. Yes, the occasional revival, but oftentimes a resistance to God. And so it's really a tragic story, the spiritual decline of Israel as a nation. Let's go back to the simple outline that I said when we first started 1 Kings. Very simple outline just to put in your head. Sorry, I don't have it up here. But never have it up here, right? Since I don't do that. Uh, three parts to 1 and 2 Kings together. Think of 1 and 2 Kings like this. Uh, uh, you know, the, main, the first main point is the reign of Solomon, the first 11 chapters. The reign of Solomon in the first 11 chapters. Secondly, the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom, 1 Kings 12, all the way to 2 Kings 17. 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17. And, and that section ends with the fall of the northern kingdom. And then thirdly, the last days of the kingdom of Judah. Kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, 2 Kings 18 through 25. Tonight we are going to be in the divided kingdom section. That's where 2 Kings 1 is. We're still in the divided kingdom. And it's fitting as we, as we begin this book, which highlights the decline of Israel, to start with a king who epitomizes that decline, his name is Ahaziah. Ahaziah. Now, as we consider the brief reign of Ahaziah, only two years, we're going to encounter our old friend again, Elijah. Elijah comes back in this chapter to make his presence known, or I should say he comes back to make the, Lord, to make the Lord's presence known in a big way. And, uh, but that's not all. We will also be treated to an application of this scripture. 2 Kings chapter 1 in the New Testament, or I should say a misapplication of this scripture by two disciples of Christ who are going to try their hand at homiletics. Homiletics is a science and art of preaching. These two disciples are going to try their hand at the application section of a sermon in 2 Kings chapter 1. So I want to consider our study under two headings tonight. Number one, God's rightful judgment, 2 Kings chapter 1, God's rightful judgment, 2 Kings 1, and, and secondly, Christ's tender mercy, Luke chapter 9. Christ's tender mercy, Luke chapter 9. First of all, God's, God's rightful judgment. Now, when I speak of 
God's rightful judgment. I'm talking about his judgment on King Ahaziah. And first of all, I want you to notice that Ahaziah deserves God's judgment. He deserves it. Look at, go back to 1 Kings 22, last chapter of 1 Kings. 1 Kings 22, the very end. <clears throat> we didn't get to this last time, but verse uh, 51, there are two basic reasons why Ahaziah, who's the son of Ahab, by the way, wicked Ahab and Jezebel, two reasons why he deserves God's judgment. Number one, he patterned his life after evil people. Look at verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Unfortunately for Ahaziah, he had three evil people presented to him as, as uh, people to follow, uh, to pattern himself after, after as a child. Those people were Ahab, wicked king Ahab, Jezebel, wicked queen Jezebel, and Jeroboam, the guy who influenced Israel to idolatry again and again and again. Many kings followed after Jeroboam. Not exactly role models, right? I mean, how much of a worse start could a child have in life than to have these three, boy, I just thought of the word clowns, uh, as to these three people who are basically servants of Satan, to raise this child. And they raised him to be what? A servant of Satan as well. They did do that. Now, you know, as I, by the way, parents, I know we've talked about this before. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. Don't pass over this verse too quickly because as, as we look at this verse, remember, <clears throat> we have a responsibility to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We have that responsibility placed upon us, the weighty responsibility. And, uh, you know, this is not the main emphasis of the text. But you need to stop and ask yourself the question, what kind of influence am I on my children? How am I influencing? Am I pointing them toward the Lord, or am I pointing them away from the Lord like these three did? And I'm not trying, again, I want you to think about this. It's good periodically to, to think about these things. But even though he had a bad start, Ahaziah had a bad start with bad parents and bad influences, nevertheless, all people are born sinners, Right? All of us have a sin nature, so we have to own up to that. On our, we have to own up to that. We have to accept that as life goes on. Look, whatever my circumstances were growing up, I got to own up to it now. I've got to face God on my own here. God's going to judge me, and Ahaziah must do the same. He cannot forever blame God if he he never did, but he could never forever blame God for his upbringing. And so, he deserves God's judgment because he follows these three horrible examples. Secondly, he deserves God's judgment because he practices idolatry. Look at verse 53. So he served Baal and worshipped him. Serves Baal and worships him. Like father, like son. His dad did the same thing. Uh, and so Ahaziah plunges full steam, this is what he'd been taught all his life, into Baal worship, right? He serves him, he worships him, he devotes his life to him, just like his father had done. Therefore, he deserves the judgment of God. But not only does he deserve God's judgment, he provokes God's judgment. He provokes God's judgment. Look at verse 53 again. He served Baal and worshipped him, and he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done, chapter, uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. <clears throat> and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and he became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, and whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, 
Arise and go, to, go up to meet messengers of the, of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed where you've gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you returned? They said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you've gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, 1 Kings 22, the last verse, 53, informs us that Ahaziah has provoked the Lord to anger. Just this constant practice of idolatry, it's constantly provoking the Lord to anger. The, the phrase literally means he became hot with anger. God is getting very angry. His anger is building towards you know, our long-suffering God. His anger is building towards Ahaziah. Ahaziah is trying God's patience. And quite frankly, the Lord is about ready to unleash his judgment. He's had enough of Ahaziah, even his short reign of two years. And he's about ready to unleash his judgment. Provoking the Lord was a way of life, you have to understand, for Ahaziah. That's what he did. He did it all the time. But there's a specific way that he provokes the Lord in 2 Kings chapter 1. There's a statement made three times in this chapter. You've already seen it twice. It's, it shows us what the problem is. That statement is made in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 16. Look at the end of verse 3 again. Elijah says, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? The problem with Ahab is, is the same problem, um, Ahaziah, it's the same problem his father Ahab had. He refuses. He will not acknowledge the Lord is God. He will not acknowledge that the Lord is God. We've been seeing this again and again in all these chapters. Lord, But the Lord doesn't let him go. He doesn't let that go by without inter- interfering, inter- intervening. And the providence of God, with all this provocation of, 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 against God, in the providence of God, two things happen that get, his, get Ahaziah's attention or should get his attention especially the second one. Number one, Moab rebels. See that in verse 1, 2 Kings 1? 2 Kings 1? They rebel against Israel. Now, for a long time, Moab's been held in check by Israel. They were subdued by Israel. They were paying taxes to Israel under David. And they've been doing this. But if you remember the last couple of chapters, Syria has attacked Israel and Israel has lost. And now Israel's in a weakened state. And Moab sees that and they say, hey, time to rebel. And they start their rebellion. That's the first thing that happens. And secondly, Ahaziah has an accident. That's what it says in verse 2. He's got an accident. He is in his upper room, or maybe he's on a room they, they had built on a roof. A lot of times back in then, they would back in those days, they'd have something on the roof. And In fact, even some people slept on the roof because it was cooler up there. And the roof is enclosed by some kind of lattice work, some kind of uh, fragile uh, structure, maybe made of reed, maybe made of strips of wood, nobody knows for sure. And the idea was to let breezes come through there. You could block the sunlight to some degree, but you could have breezes coming through. And it doesn't tell us what happened. Somehow he fell through the lattice work. Did he lean on it? What did he do? I don't know. Somehow he fell through the lattice work and presumably he landed on the ground. So he took a serious fall. And because of that, he's severely injured. So as a result of all this, he ends up with this sickness. The word sickness is used. That word can cover a wide range of, of meanings, by the way. Maybe he had internal bleeding as a result of his fall. Maybe he had a fever. We don't know what he had. 
But whatever it was, the result of this fall, he thinks, man, I think I'm going to die. This is a serious fall, and it makes him think that his life is threatened. So he makes a request. He says to his men, to his messengers, I want you to go to Ekron, and I want you to inquire of Baalzebub as to whether I will recover. Now, I want you to notice two things about this request. First of all, it's a blasphemous request. It's blasphemy. It's, it, this is what Elijah essentially is saying. When he, when he meets the messengers, Elijah just, you know, Elijah just appears on the scene, right? We've seen this since 1 Kings 17. Kind of is just there all of a sudden. God sends him somewhere, and he's there facing people. And so he meets the messengers of the king. And first of all, uh, why this is blasphemous is because Ahaziah is asking advice from an idol. You know, He's a Baal worshiper. He's not asking advice from God. It's not, even, it's not even an idol in Israel, by the way. It's in Ekron. Where's that at? That's in Philistine territory. It's about 45 miles away. He's sending guys 45 miles away to a guy, to a, uh, an idol named Baalzebub. The word Baalzebub means, the word Baal means Lord. Zebub is of the flies, Lord of the flies. And so he, no one knows about this particular God in history. No one really knows anything about this God. There's been speculation as to what it means, but, but it's only speculation. There are many forms of Baal. We've seen these guys are Baal worshippers, right? Ahab, his father is Omri, now Ahaziah. And so whatever locale you go to, there's like a different Baal to worship there, okay? Different lord, different idol to worship there under the name of Baal. This is Baal's above right here. The key word here is Baal, by the way, which means lord. Ahaziah's lord is who? It's Baal, right? Not God. So... Apparently, Ahaziah thinks that this Baalzebub, 45 miles away, I've heard about this god over here in Philistine territory, this town of Ekron, which is the main, one of the main towns of the Philistines, that he can tell whether people are going to recover from sickness or not. Or somehow he's in charge of health care back in that day or something. And so he, gets, he thinks this is, he's going to get information about this. So Elijah intercepts the messengers with the word of the Lord. He said, is it because there's no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal's above the God of Ekron. So this request is pure blasphemy. He really thinks that if he travels 45 miles to a foreign land, not even Israel, he's going to get information regarding his health, his health situation. He does not understand that Yahweh, the Lord God, is sovereign. He's sovereign. Sovereign over Israel. Sovereign over Philistia. Sovereign over the whole world, right? He's sovereign over everybody. And so we would say he's what? What do we say in, in theology? We say he's omnipresent, right? Omnipresent means God's everywhere present at once with the entirety of his being. He's everywhere at once with the, the fullness of his being. He's present. You can't go anywhere where God is not. You can't escape God. You don't have to travel 45 miles to get a hold of the Lord somewhere. You don't have to go to a foreign country. Well, maybe the Lord's in France. You don't need to do that. I don't think he's in France, by the way. He's in France. He's, he's all over the world. But the fact of the matter is God's only a prayer away, isn't he? That's the great thing. He's only a prayer away. We pray and we know we can come in contact with God. Had Ahaziah worshipped the Lord, had he known the Lord, he would have done that. He would have known, I just pray and and talk to God. But he believes there's a bail for every occasion. There's a bail for healing in Ekron. There's a bail for uh, storms and, and weather and so on and a lot of things. We've talked about this. But the only God who has any meaning for Ahaziah is Baal. For him, the Lord is irrelevant, or is totally irrelevant to, to Ahaziah. And so the Lord considers this an insult, nothing more than blasphemy in front of him. 
So after the messengers of, of the king return, with this message now from Elijah, why are you inquiring of this God, this false God? And they give him this message from Elijah. The king should have had second thoughts. He should have had second thoughts. Should have made him realize that not only is the Lord omnipresent, but he's, he's also omniscient. He's all-knowing, right? He's all-knowing. How is it that Elijah could have this private information and know it that, that was only known to the king? The king fell and had an accident. No one knows about this except his messengers. But Elijah all of a sudden comes and says, Hey, why are you inquiring of this Baal regarding this situation here? He knows private information. He knows about this mission that no one is supposed to know about. There's no possible way that Elijah could have known this outside of the fact that God knows everything and told Elijah. It's the revelation of God to Elijah. And since God is omniscient, he knows, he knows all things. He knows what the king, Ahaziah, is doing, what he's planning, what he's thinking, all these things. But Ahaziah is so blinded by Satan, he can't see the truth about the fact that God is not only omnipresent, but he's omniscient. And so his request is blasphemous. And then secondly, it's a sad request. He, uh, his injury has brought him to the point where he thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's going to die. And so he, what does he do? Where does he turn in his time of sorrow? Where does he turn in, t- turn in his time of trouble? He turns to an idol. He turns to an idol. And so he chooses a source that is going to do him no good at all. That's all he has. Isn't it sad when people are in the state? That's all he knows is I've worshipped Baal all my life. And so the sickness that he has, whatever it is, and the rebellion from Moab should have turned him to God. They should, they should have made him think, been a means of turning him towards God and repentance. It does not, however. You know, what do people do? People without the Lord, what do they do? You ever thought about this? What do they do in times of trouble and sorrow and difficulty and sickness? What do they, where do they turn? Where do they turn to? Outside of doctors, which, by the way, we're, provi- we're thankful the Lord has provided doctors for us. But when a person has a terminal illness, where does, he re- where does he turn? Oftentimes to a man-made religion. He goes to a priest to confess his sins. He uh, wants to uh, pray to a saint, right? He wants to uh, maybe um, count rosary beads, or maybe he wonders, have my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds? All these kind of things. I, I read when, years ago when Frank Sinatra died, I read, I can't find anything about it now, <clears throat> I read that you know, he was in, a, in the Catholic Church for years. I read that he gave thousands of dollars to the church to try to kind of ensure his eternity. You know, people, it's very sad, uh, the, way, the things that people do on their deathbed. So, so many people turn to a false hope. But the only true hope in any crisis is Christ, right? He's the Christ, he's the, the Christ of every crisis as opposed to Baal. But Ahaziah has provoked the Lord too far this time. He's provoked him too far. And this is a very sad request. And Elijah says, you're going to die on your bed. <laughs> You're going to die. He pronounces death to him this whole chapter, by the way. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, captures that meaning very, very well with the grammar. Look at verse 4. He says, you shall surely die. That's a, it was a very strong emphasis there. You're going to definitely die. There's no doubt about it. There will be no recovery for you, Ahaziah. The only way you could possibly recover is to repent and humble himself before God. As we've seen, the Lord is gracious to those who do that, right? But Ahaziah deserves God's judgment. He provokes God's judgment. Thirdly, his men receive God's judgment. His own men receive God's judgment. Look at verse 7. Uh, the king said to his messengers, after they told him about Elijah, what kind of a man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? <laughs> they answered, 
He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. I know this guy. The king said, then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50, and he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the, Elijah was sitting on the top of the hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah replied to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50, and he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Well, Ahaziah is so focused on, on the Lord's messenger, Elijah, that he continues to know, know, ignore the Lord himself. You know, he wants to know, who is this guy that was talking to you anyway? What's the description of him? And they, they had only told him a man came with us, to us with a message. Well, who is, who is this man? What is describing? And so they give two identifying features that more or less profile Elijah. You can't, by the way, you're not going to get away with not being profiled if you're Elijah, Okay. He's going, to, he's going to get He's going to be definitely identified. First of all, he's described as a hairy man, which is, or literally a possessor or owner of hair, or, or the word, actually, this is the word is Baal, Baal. He's a bale of hair. He's, he's a, sorry. He's the Lord of hair. That's what it means, the possessor of hair. Hairy guy, right? And secondly, he wears a leather girdle or leather belt around his waist. What do you think of when you see that description? That's a rare description, right? This guy's singling himself out without a dead Daniel, you could catch this guy easy in the, in, the, in the sheriff's office, right? You could get this guy real easy. Oh, that's pretty easy. This guy's hairy and he's got a leather belt. Got it. We'll get him easy. And so we're, we're reminded of John the Baptist, all right, when we see that. who's also uh, spoken of in connection with Elijah. But when they, get that descript- when they give that description, immediately Ahaziah knows who it is. There's no mistaking about it. Oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Of course, who else could it be? How did Ahaziah know about Elijah the Tishbite? Well, his father Ahab considered Elijah to be his mortal enemy, right? He called him his enemy. He called him the troubler of Israel, all these things. No doubt, he informed his son, and his son knew all about this as the years went on. Ahab was the, rather, uh, uh, Elijah was the enemy of Ahab, and now he's the enemy of Ahaziah, and he's predicted the death of Ahaziah. <laughs> so the king decides to arrest Elijah. He's going to imagine going out to arrest Elijah. Okay? And I believe he's got the intention of killing him, putting him to death. Remember his mother tried to put him to death? Remember that? How do we know this? Well, four ways we can know that he's going to be arrested. First of all, uh, Ahaziah has a natural hatred for the Lord or anyone belonging to the Lord. We already know this. He hates the Lord, he's a Baal worshiper. Number two, his father hated Elijah and all of God's prophets and tried to kill them. Number three, uh, Ahaziah sends a military police force to Elijah. Those 50 guys with the commander, that's a military force going out to get him. And so why send 51 men to bring back one man? He's he's going to arrest him. It's a show of force. And uh, he could have just sent messengers like he did earlier uh, to Ekron. No, he sends a show of force. And then number four, the captain orders Elijah, he orders him to come off the hill that he's sitting on, not a request, when he says come down, it's not a request, that's not an invitation to come tour the Oval Office in Samaria, 
None of that. This is a command. He says, oh, man of God, the king says, come down. Send a command for him. Now, come down now. This is an arrogant kind of statement, by the way. The second king orders him to come down quickly. Come down quickly. Don't, this is the order of the king. Don't defy the king. Don't make the king wait. Don't delay the king. Don't keep him waiting. Remember, keep this in mind as we look at this passage. This is an evil, godless regime. This regime of Ahab and Ahaziah, godless regime. And so they, the king says, sends his captain and his 50 guys, soldiers, go get Elijah. They address him as man of God, call him man of God. Now, either they're mocking him or they are just calling him what he is. He's known for being a man of God. Everybody knows this about Elijah. It's not a secret. He stands for God as opposed to Baal. Everybody's aware of this. By the way, people should know we are believers. They should know at your job you're a believer. It should not be a guessing game. They should know this by our consistent witness, our consistent testimony, uh, our consistent example. People should know that we're believers. We should stand out like sore thumbs, right? I don't mean to be arrogant or, or anything like that. We should be kind and loving and all that. But we should, people should know we're believers. Elijah, it was known that he was a believer. He was known he was a man of God. And twice the answer from Elijah is, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And that is exactly what happens. They die, all these guys. Now, when I'm reading this, and when you're reading this, and when people through the ages have read this, we're appalled, aren't we? We're shocked at this harshness. Why is Elijah killing these innocent people? Is what we tend to think. They haven't done anything wrong, and many have questioned this. Many have questioned, why is this happening? It all seems so harsh, right? It's very harsh. One commentator even said, this is moral pointlessness. There's no point to any of this at all. A lot of people would tend to be, would think that on the surface. Now, first of all, understand that Elijah himself, of, of his own power, is not killing anyone. Of his own power, he's not killing anyone. He just is calling for the fire strike, right? Who's sending the fire? Who's sending the fire? Elijah, it's coming from heaven. It's called the fire of God. God is sending the fire. God is killing these, he's killing these men. God is the one killing these people. And, and what, when Elijah calls for the fire, God is approving this both times when he sends the fire. It's, approval, it's approved by God. It's being enforced by God. Why would God approve of something so harsh? Why? Well, I think there's three reasons. First of all, to judge evil men. God would never have done this had these men not been evil. He wouldn't have done it. This is an evil regime, right? Started by Omri, an evil man, continued by Ahab, an even more evil man, now picked up by Ahaziah's evil son. It's an evil regime. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against ungodliness in this case. Number two, I think he sent the fire to protect his prophet. Protect his prophet. They're coming to get Elijah. They're coming to arrest him. Probably coming to kill him in all likelihood. What do you think they're going to do? Do you think they're going to pamper him back in Samaria? They're probably coming to kill him. And so the Lord protects his prophet. As long as he has a mission for Elijah, he's going to keep him in in the game, right? He's going to keep him alive. And uh, some may die a martyr's death. I've said this before. Uh, As long as God has a work for us to do, he's going to keep us around. He's going to protect us. Now, he, he may allow some to die a martyr's death. For his glory, right? Even those people he's keeping around until the time he's, he's done with them. But the Lord is the one that makes these decisions. And number three, I think he sent this fire, this harsh judgment to validate himself, for God to validate himself and to validate his prophet. That's what he did when the fire of God fell from heaven in chapter 18. Go back to chapter 18. When you're looking at this section, by the way, 
Go back to chapter 18 of 1 Kings. I'm sorry, 1 Kings 18. Verse 36, we've read the verse many times. Because there's a parallel here. When Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he called fire down from heaven, 1 Kings 18.36 against the false prophets of Baal. 1 Kings 18.36 says at that time, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel. In other words, validate yourself as God and I am your servant. Validate me as your true servant. And then I have done all these things at your word. And in verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell. Fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and so on. And God validated himself in Elijah in both instances. This demonstration, harsh demonstration though it was, reveals another attribute of God, and that is his omnipotence. He's all-powerful, right? He's all-powerful. He's, he, the demonstration, by the way, the demonstration by the first two groups, the captain of the 50 comes first time, second captain of the second 50 come, that should have been enough for Ahaziah to repent, right? Think about this. He realizes these guys got toasted, basically. He should have said, I repent, Lord. You're judging my guys. I repent. He, didn't, he doesn't do that. No, he sends a third group out. He should have realized that, that the Lord is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, but he's still stubborn, he's stiff-necked, just like his father was. So he deserves the judgment of God. He provokes God's judgment. His men receive God's judgment. Fourthly, Ahaziah experiences God's judgment himself. He experiences God's judgment himself in verses 13 to 18. Look at verse 13. So he again sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. How many guys do you want killed? This guy doesn't get it, does he? When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down. This guy's got a different approach, by the way. Take a different approach this time. I heard about my my buddies in in the military here. They got wiped out. He comes and bows down on his knees before Elijah, and he begs him and says to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your, in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, here's the third time this is said, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up. You shall surely die, emphasized again with the word surely. Verse 17, so Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken, and because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now notice the difference between the approach of the first two guys, approach of the third guy. He bows on his knees. He begs for his life. He begs for the life of his men. That's how Ahaziah should have approached the Lord, right? That's how he should have approached the Lord, by begging God and by, to spare his life, by humbling himself before the Lord. But he doesn't do that. But this time the angel of the Lord again comes to Elijah, second time, and he says, go down with this guy. Don't be afraid of him. Did you see that? Do not be afraid of him. In verses 9 to 12, it doesn't look like Elijah's afraid of anybody, doesn't it? When he's calling down fire from heaven. Uh, but there must have been some fear based on the statement. Might have been some fear. And also, his life was, pro- was, was in danger. That's why he's afraid. He's, his life's in danger. You know, again, as, as James 5 says, we talked about James 5, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
And he, uh, and, and so he's, he's a man, not a machine, right? He gets, he gets afraid. He, he can become afraid. He can be, you ever been fearful and you're trying to do the Lord's work and you're fearful? You ever witnessed someone, someone and you're fearful about doing it? You know, it's, it's something that we experience. We're, we're people here, but we still trust the Lord, right? He experienced fear just like, just like we do, but he goes to the king and tells him the exact same message. You're going to die. <laughs> Nothing's changed here. You're going to die, and he dies. The word of the Lord comes to pass, just like he said it would. And to add insult to injury, he dies with no son, which back then was considered to be a curse. This whole chapter is all about idolatry, death, judgment. That's how Ahaziah is characterized in the Bible. This is, this, is, this is basically what it says. There's a couple more things we'll see later on. This is basically it. Are the events of this chapter a little too harsh for us? You know what I would say? I would say hell's harsh, wouldn't you? Think about it. Hell is a harsh a thought and concept and, and, and fact. And the very fact that fire is being used here to remind us of that, how horrible the judgment of God is on people who are rejecting Christ. The God who is long-suffering, filled with loving kindness, it says it again and again in the Old Testament, can also be harsh in his judgment on evil. Yes, he can. He can be harsh. But also, he's always right in his judgment on evil. It may seem harsh to us, but he's always right in his judgment on evil. And in the way he carries out his judgment, he's right. All right, now I want to switch gears, and I want you to turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, I want you to consider Christ's tender mercy. We've talked about God's rightful judgment, rightfully judging an evil man who rejected him again and again. But I want you to turn to Luke 9 and see Christ's tender mercy. Why are we going to Luke 9? We'll see in a minute. Luke 9, 51. When the days were approaching for the ascension of Jesus, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. They did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Jesus has been in Galilee in the northern part of Israel. He's traveling south, and he's going to go straight through Samaria, determined to go to Jerusalem, it says. Literally, his face is set to go to Jerusalem. Nothing can stop him. He's on his way. He knows he's going to die on, die on the cross in Jerusalem. He's on his way to do that. He goes through Samaria. By the way, Samaria is where Ahaziah and Ahab lived. Same area. Since that time in history, to, to the first century now in Luke, the Jews and the Samaritans have come to hate each other for various reasons. They're, it's a racial t- uh, hatred, okay? They can't stand each other. They, the Samaritans have become a mixed race. They're not true Jewish race like the Jews would like. So there's racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans. However, Jesus has no racial hatred, right? He has none, and he wants the people in Samaria, the people who are despised by the Jews, to hear the kingdom of God. And so he, pre- he sends messengers ahead. Hey, go to Samaria and prepare for my coming. Prepare those people for my coming. I'm going to come there to preach. And, but in verse 53, the Samaritans refused Jesus, just as Ahaziah had refused Yahweh in the Old Testament. Theirs is more of a racial reason, but nevertheless they refuse him, plus they have a different religious system. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem. They hate Jerusalem. Well, nothing to do with it. They, no, we're not, no thanks. We're not interested in you coming here and talking to us about anything. Uh, well, what, what do you think happens then? Well, that sets off James and John. They're very angry. By the way, what do they call James and John? Call the sons of thunder, right? 
And here they begin to act like their namesake. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We can do that. We can do that for you if that's what you like. Where did they get that from? They got it from 2 Kings chapter 1. James and John were familiar with the Old Testament, and they knew about this. Now, what's, think about what's happening here. The disciples are in the vicinity of Samaria, where the captains of 50 had been, right, that were consumed by fire. The disciples have authority from Christ. Look at, look at Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Look at Luke 9, 1 and 2, same chapter, Luke 9. They have authority from Christ. <clears throat> Luke 9, 1, Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal disease. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God to perform healing. Now, that's power, isn't it? <laughs> that's great power, great authority. Cast out demons, have the ability to heal, and all these things. So they have authority, these disciples, James and John do. And then, if anyone rejects their message, they are to give a visual demonstration uh, of their displeasure. Look at Luke, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus says, go, go and preach the gospel. As for those who do not receive you, uh, as you go out of that, from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Show your displeasure. <clears throat> You're not going to receive us? Okay, we're shaking the dust of our feet off against you. They have that in the back of their minds. In Luke chapter 9, there are references to Elijah. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had been risen from the dead. And by some that who? Elijah had appeared. People were saying, maybe Elijah's back. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Look at verse 18. It happened that while Jesus was praying alone, his disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, who do people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah. Others said, one of the prophets of old has risen again. Look at verse 28, the transfiguration. Some eight days later, after these things, Jesus took along Peter and John and James. John and James were in this group and went up to a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaning. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Verse 33, and as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. So you have these references to Elijah in here. And then you have uh, the, the James and John see the 5,000 fed as you read this chapter. They see 5,000 people fed by Christ, a miracle. They hear the voice of God coming from heaven. Look at verse 35. Voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. They hear this. And so James and John have all this authority from Christ. And they see all these miracles, and they witness all these miracles. And they have Elijah on their minds. And they are ready to throw down at any hint of a rejection of Christ. Don't even dare to reject Christ with all this, right? But they misapplied the scripture from 2 Kings 1. They misapplied it. They thought they could take matters in their own hands. They thought they could do what Elijah did and what he did in 2 Kings 1. They thought, he could, they thought they could be Elijah again. They misunderstood. They misunderstood what was going on in 2 Kings 1. In 2 Kings 1, Yahweh directs his prophet to pronounce judgment upon a wicked regime, the wicked reign of Ahaziah. He'd already predicted the downfall of the house of Ahab. And now the Lord is bringing judgment on Ahaziah, bringing judgment on the house of Ahab and his military personnel who no doubt also reject Yahweh. And so Jesus rebukes James and John, and he says, you don't know what kind of spirit, what are you saying, guys? 
You're going to call down fire from heaven? You don't know what kind of spirit you're from, you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he, sells, he says elsewhere, by the way, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This statement is repeated elsewhere, these kind of statements. This is always the mission of Jesus, isn't it? He, he has a mission of mercy. He comes to save sinners. That's why he's here. He comes to save sinners. He's not here to destroy anybody. He's here to save people from their sins. James and John failed the application section of Homiletics 101. They thought they, had, they thought they could apply the scripture, right? They misapplied it. What's the lesson here? Let God judge people, right? Let God be the judge of people. He's going to judge whom he will in his way, in his time. Leave the judgment to God. That's not our responsibility. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to preach the gospel, right? So that sinners may come to know him. That's our responsibility. We're on a mission of mercy. God's responsibility is to take care of judgment as he sees fit. Let me ask you a question. Does that mean the God of the Old Testament is mean and the Christ of the New Testament is nice? Is that what I'm saying here? No. Listen to this definition of the Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God and there is one God. Yahweh of the Old Testament and the Christ of the New Testament are in perfect unity. In perfect unity. And the God of the Old Testament is not only a God of judgment, by the way, he's a God of mercy. As he showed mercy to Ahab on several occasions. And the Christ of the New Testament is not only a Christ of mercy, he's a Christ of judgment. Because he says in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Yeah, there's going to come a day where Jesus brings judgment. But for now, he's offering a merciful salvation. That is his mission. The Son of Man came to save, not destroy. Let me ask you a question. What should your attitude be toward the lost? What should it be? Sometimes we get so frustrated with evil in our world, don't we? Don't we get frustrated with evil and and the rejection of Christ we see, and we want to call fire down from heaven, right, to consume these evil sinners? Don't you ever think that? You ever think anything like that? Man, I like to deal with that guy judgmental way but first of all we need to realize we used to be sinners right evil sinners before the lord before he saved us don't forget that and we're not here to administer judgment that's not our job by the way christ never criticized elijah's judgment and god's judgment in second kings one he never criticized it because it was the rightful judgment of god but our job christ wants us to show compassion to the lost to preach the gospel to the lost show them mercy even if they reject us even if they reject our message we're here to do what Call down fire from heaven? No, show them mercy, right? That's why we're here. You see the last sentence of Luke chapter 9, verse 56? The last statement? And they went on to another village? What do we do when when people reject us? We keep preaching the gospel, right? Go to the next person. Preach the gospel to that person. Maybe he'll listen. Maybe he won't. Someone rejects you, go to the next person and preach the gospel. Do you think that James and John learned their lesson from the rebuke of Jesus? We'll turn to Acts chapter 12. We'll close in a second here. Acts 12, verse 1. Acts 12, 1. says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. They killed James, the brother of John. Now, you know, obviously the pagan rulers knew that James was a follower of Christ. They knew he belonged to the church. They knew what he did. They knew he served God. And he's martyred for his faith. He's martyred. Now, a guy who at one time wanted to see people killed, who rejected Christ, he's killed himself now for his faith. 
with the sword. Do you think he learned his lesson? Yes, he did. He becomes a martyr for Christ. And what about John? Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Acts 8, 5. There, it says there, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Goes down to Samaria. There's persecution. People are being scattered uh, for, abroad for preaching, to preach the word. Philip goes down to Samaria to preach the gospel. People are being saved. Things, great things are happening. And what does the church decide to do in Jerusalem? Send more help to Samaria. And look who they choose. Acts 8, 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and who else? Peter and John. They sent them Peter and John. And look what they do. Look at verse 25. So when they, Peter and John, had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the what? Samaritans. It looks like James and John got it, doesn't it? Do you get it? Do I get it? Why are we here? Are we agents of judgment like Elijah to bring down the judgment of God? We warn people of judgment. Yes, we warn them of coming judgment. That is our job. But we don't carry out the judgment. We're on a mission of mercy, aren't we? That's what we are. We're on a mission of mercy. We're here to proclaim the gospel of Christ to everyone, regardless of race, regardless of religious background. We proclaim the gospel. That is the kind of spirit we possess. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Let's make it our mission to join with his mission to proclaim the gospel mercy to sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again for your word. We pray that we would be merciful. Lord, many times we have uh, bitterness in our heart towards people. We don't, when they reject us, when they reject the gospel, we uh, want to lash out sometimes or argue and, and fight back. We pray we won't be that way. We pray we'll have mercy and compassion and love and kindness, Lord, as you did, and that we would love all people and preach the gospel to all people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.